0: Good number here tonight. So good to see each one of you. As I mentioned this morning, I don't know if it was mentioned everywhere, but uh, Brother Mike finds himself in Denver now. I hope he made it. Um, He was leaving this afternoon, headed for Bear Valley. He will be there all week, so please do keep Mike in your prayers and the wonderful work that he is doing there and he continues to do uh, in Bear Valley. I want you to keep your Bibles open to Judges chapter 6, and we'll get into chapter 7 in just a moment. But I want to bring to your attention the fact that Gideon is a name that we find in Hebrews chapter 11. That's interesting to me. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews is talking about all these great men and women of faith. Starts off talking about the faith of of Abel, right? And then gets into the faith of Enoch, who walked with God. He gets into the faith of Noah, and building the ark, and obeying God, and doing what God told him to do. He gets into the faith of Abraham and Sarah those who listened to God and obeyed Him when God told them to leave. We get into the faith of, of their children, of, of Isaac and then Jacob, and then you get into the faith of Moses, and these all make great sense to us who are students of the Old Testament. Now, these are some of the great characters. These are men and women that, that we want to hold on to and say, yes, I want to emulate them and the faith that they displayed in God. And then the writer of Hebrews, as if he is one of us running out of, running out of time... Running out of space. In Hebrews chapter 11, in verse 32, he says, And what more shall I say? The time would fail me to speak of Gideon. And then he lists some others. And then in the end of verse number 34, he says that these that I'm talking about were responsible for putting to flight the aliens of men, or putting to flight the aliens, the foreigners. And that's exactly what we read about in Judges chapter 7. I think Gideon, You know, we we know about him, we know that he's one of the judges, but maybe this is perhaps one of the greatest victories the world has ever known. And I want to say that again. This is one of the greatest victories the world has ever known. This isn't just Bible history, this is world history. It's Gideon, and it's in Judges chapter 7. Now tonight, we're not going to spend a great deal of time looking at the victory itself. But we could, and it would be worth your time to look at the victory that takes place. But I just want to remind you, many of us sitting here tonight were familiar with this account of Gideon. And you know that he started off with a large group of people, a large army, and God whittles it down, continues to whittle it down, until he's an army of just 300 men. And the Bible says this in chapter 7 and verse number 12. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites... "...all the people of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts... ...and their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude." Now can you just go ahead and grasp that picture in your mind? Can you just get that in your mind? You've got the Amalekites and you've got the, uh, all the people of the east and the Midianites... ...and they're all there and the Bible says that you've got this valley... ...and they're all occupying the valley... They're as numerous as locusts, and their camels are without number. All right. You got the picture in your mind. And they're up against how many? 300. 300 against an army that is described as numerous as locusts... ...and has camels without number. Now what is God going to do? In verse number 16, the Bible says that he, Gideon... ...he divided the 300 men into three companies... And he put a trumpet into every man's hand... ...with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. These sound like great weapons of war, don't they? In verse 17, And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise, watch. And when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me... ...then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp... ...and say, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the, the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch. And they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hand and the trumpets in their right hand for the blowing. And they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp. And the whole army ran and cried out and fled. And when the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the army fled to Beth-Achaia towards Zariah, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Taboth. Now, again, I'm a picture guy. I like to have these things in my head. I want to see this. And so you you can picture a valley. You can picture the valley full of, of this army of the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east... And you can just picture that it's full. It is filled. It's got people in it as numerous as locusts. And Gideon takes a hundred men and puts them on this side, and a hundred men on that side, and a hundred men over here in the middle. And he says, now, when I blow the trumpet, you, you break your torches, you blow the trumpet, and you shout. Now, what are their hands full of? The Bible says that in their left hand, they have torches, and in their right hand... They have trumpets, and they're going to blow the trumpets. So my question is, where's the sword? We're going to have a battle. You need a weapon. They've got torches. What are you going to do, burn them to death? No. Are you going to blow them to death? No. You've got torches and a trumpet. What are you going to do? You're going to watch what God can do. And that's exactly what happened. God set the enemy's swords on each other, and God took care of it. Brethren, I want you to understand something with me. When we look at the Old Testament and in the accounts of this, this period and this account that we're looking at in Judges 6 and 7, I want you to just remember that this isn't the God of the Old Testament. This is God. This is our God. This is what He can do, and this is what He did. And this is here for our learning, for our understanding. Now, this is Gideon at the end of the story. All right, now there's more about Gideon. You can get on into chapter 8 and you can look at more of the life of Gideon. This is somewhat a familiar account to to students of the Bible. And and you know about Gideon and his 300 men and this great defeat in this valley and and what God did to help them uh, get this victory. That's the end. And maybe you're thinking, wow, this Gideon, he's really something. I mean, he's in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32. His faith is spoken of. God is pleased with him. God has given him this great victory. This man must have been courageous and great all the way from the start. God must have seen something really special about the courage of Gideon. That's the end. Well, I not to back up to the beginning. I want to go back to chapter 6 tonight. And I want you to be reminded of this leader... ...that God chose. This leader that was going to, uh, with, the, with God, give victory to God's people... ...with just 300 men without any swords being used. Alright, who is this man and what do we know about him? And so I want to back up to where we start... ...and I appreciate Brother Jeff reading for us in verse number 11. I want you to notice maybe something that, that we just bypass... ...we just kind of pass over... And I want you to notice there in verse number 11 that the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree in Ophrah and it belonged to the father of Gideon. And the Bible says that Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress in order to keep it or to hide it from the Midianites. He's he's threshing wheat in a winepress. Threshing wheat... In a wine press. Now, where would you normally thresh wheat, do you suppose? On a threshing floor. Normally, you're gonna thresh wheat on a threshing floor. Now, you and I, we're not as familiar with this, and of course we're not. All right, I'm not familiar with this, and, and neither are you. We don't live in this day and time. But the Bible has a lot to say about threshing floors. In fact, the Bible says that it was on the site of a threshing floor... ...that the temple of God was built. In 2 Samuel 24, verses 15 through 25... ...David goes and he buys the threshing floor of Aruna. He goes and purchases this threshing floor... ...and this is eventually the site, 2 Chronicles 3 and verse 1... ...where God's house is going to be built. Now you've seen pictures of the temple mount. Some of us have been there and we've seen it with our own eyes... And I want to remind you, it's elevated. The temple mount of God, it sits on a mountain, Mount Moriah. It has valleys on either side. When you look up, you have to look up. And at this day and time in Jerusalem, there are skyscrapers... ...and it's a major modern city... ...and it kind of takes away some of the luster of what you think in your mind. But I'm reminding you that in David's time, in Solomon's time... This would have been the focal point of the entire city of Jerusalem. Everybody is looking up at the Temple Mount. What's my point? Threshing floors were generally up. Generally, you needed in a wide open place. You needed a large area where you could take the wheat... ...and you could throw it up into the air, the heads of grain... ...and the wind would carry off the chaff... ...and the grain would fall to the ground... You needed somewhere where the wind could get to it... ...so that it could assist you in threshing the wheat. A wine press. Wine presses were generally smaller. You don't need as much space to press out the grapes. You don't need as much space. And in that day and time, you don't have refrigeration. You don't have a way to keep the, the juice uh, long times. And so th- the way you would store it is generally in the ground... And so you needed a place that was low. You needed to be able to squish the grapes and let the juice run down low into a cistern or something down in the ground. You don't need wind. You don't need anything that is wide open. See, Can you see it? He's threshing wheat in a wine press. Why? Gideon, why would you be threshing wheat in a wine press? I just want you to recognize with me tonight as we begin looking at Gideon that Gideon's out of place in his life. The Bible says he's out of place. He's doing something wrong, something different in a a place that he wouldn't normally do this. Right? You're not normally going to thresh wheat in a wine press. And so he finds himself at this time in his life out of place. You ever felt out of place in your life? You ever felt out of place? Why am I doing here? Why am I doing this? He's out of place in his life. And I want to give you three reasons tonight... ...why he is threshing wheat in a wine press. Number one, sin has him out of place in his life. Sin has him out of place in his life. I know that because I back up to verse number one in chapter six. The Bible says that the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord... So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because of the Midianites... ...the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds... ...which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites... ...and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza... ...and leave no sustenance for Israel... ...neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents... ...coming in as, catch it, numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number... ...and they would enter the land and destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites... ...and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. If you look at the end of verse number 10, the Bible says again... God speaking says, you have not obeyed my voice. Gideon, why are you threshing wheat in a wine press? Because my people and I have sinned against God. I am doing something out of place because sin is here. Because we have sinned against God. Sin has a way of doing that to our lives, doesn't it? Sin will take you further than you ever intended to go. It will be harder than you ever thought it would be. It can drop you further in your life than you ever intended it for, for anything to get. I heard recently of a man who was intoxicated. and He was driving down I-20. And somewhere between Midland and Odessa, he was on his way toward Odessa, I believe. But somewhere on the interstate, it wasn't even dark. The the sun was still out, and he was driving down the interstate. And he stopped right in the middle of both lanes, on one side of the interstate. And he just stopped, and all this traffic begins to back up behind him. And a police officer finally arrives on the scene, knocks on the man's window, and the man is asleep. He's asleep on the interstate, sir. What are you doing? I'm here to meet my wife. Sir, do you know where you are? No, no, not exactly. I don't know exactly where I am. Do you know the danger that that man was in? Do you know the danger that that man was putting others in? Sin has a way of taking us places we never intended to go, of leaving us for for longer than we ever intended to stay. And here it is in, in Judges chapter 6 that God's people for seven years are being tormented by the enemy. They're being tormented by those who have come in. And again, you can picture this land in your, in your mind where you have these lush valleys. And in that t- it looks a lot like West, West Texas. And we have irrigation out here, and it's great. They didn't have irrigation in that day and time, but what they had were little streams. And you, they ran through valleys. And the valleys, that was the only place that anything was going to grow. And so it was easy for the enemy to know where the food was going to be. And so the enemy would wait for them to sow it. Notice the enemy didn't sow it. They would wait for God's people to sow. And then when it was ready to harvest, now the enemy shows up. And they would come in and they would plunder the harvest. And they would take the animals. And they would leave nothing for God's people. Gideon, why are you threshing wheat in a wine press? Because my people are being oppressed. Because of our sin. You know, sin, it separates people from God. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. I like the words of Paul in Romans chapter 2 and verse number 4, where Paul says the goodness of God leads us to repentance. And what God's people had forgotten in Judges chapter 6 was the goodness of God. After seven years, it's as if the light bulb finally came back on and said, Hey, remember God? Remember where God is? We're in this mess because we have forsaken God. And then they finally get get delivered. They finally cry out to God, and God is there. But brethren and friends, sin has a way of putting you and taking you out of place. I want to remind you tonight that fear will do exactly the same thing. Gideon, why are you threshing wheat in a wine press? I'm afraid. I, I'm hiding it. Verse number 11 I'm, I'm hiding it. I'm keeping it from the Midianites. Fear has a way of doing that. You ever been so afraid that you found yourself doing or saying something that you never thought you would do or say? I, I think about the New Testament. If you turn over to John chapter 9, and you can think about this with me. You recall that Jesus comes and He heals a man who had been blind from birth. And you can imagine how exciting that must have been for that that man that Jesus came and healed. He was nearly 40 years old and he'd been blind from birth, the Bible says. And he was excited. But the leaders of the Jews, they were putting pressure on him. Who did this to you? Tell us who it was. And they were putting pressure on him and saying, if you give Jesus credit for this, we're going to put you out of the synagogue. And the man says, I don't know who he was, but he he healed me. He healed me. I couldn't see for all of my life. And now my eyes are open and I can see. And they finally call in the parents of the young man. Is this your boy? Yeah, that's him. Has he always been blind? Yeah, he's always been blind. From birth, he's been blind. Well, can you explain how it is that he sees? And they said, he's of age. Ask him. You know, they never look at Jesus. They never turn to Jesus. They never ask anybody else to turn to Jesus. This boy of theirs can now see. You would think it would be the happiest day of their life. But the Bible says in John chapter 9 and verse 23 that they were feared... The Jews who were going to put them out of the synagogue. Feared the Jews who were going to put them out of the synagogue. Fear will take you to a place that you don't want to be. In John chapter 12 and verse 42, Jesus said that even, or the Bible says that even among the priests, there were those who believed in Jesus, yet for fear of the Jews, they would not confess him before others. Fear has a way of doing that. Fear will put you out of place. That's why Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. That's what he's doing. He's hiding, he's trying to keep it from the enemy. Number three, and finally, doubt will have you threshing wheat in a wine press. Doubt will take you to a place that you never thought you would be, doing things you never thought you would do. Doubt has a way of doing this in our lives. Look at verse number 12, going, looking at Judges chapter 6. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, O oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of ...of the Midianites. The angel of the Lord says... ...God is with you, you mighty men of valor. And in verse number 13, Gideon says to him, my Lord. And, and that word Lord there is not uppercase. It's not uh, L-O-R-D, uh, uppercase. He's referring to him as just another man. He recognizes perhaps there's some authority with this person but he just refers to him as just another common individual. And he's saying, my Lord, well, if God is really with us, then why is all this happening? You ever ask that question of God? He's questioning God, isn't he? We've heard of all these great miracles that God did when he delivered our people out of Egypt... We've heard of all these great signs. We've heard of all these great miracles. We've heard of all this great power of God. We've heard that God is always with His people. And yet, here we are being oppressed by the Midianites. I am threshing wheat in a wine press. Where is God? That's Gideon's question. If the Lord is really for me, then why am I suffering like this? In a real moment, maybe you've asked the same. In a real moment, maybe I have too. I'm trying to do what's right. I thought I was one of his people. And here I am. I'm threshing wheat in a wine press. I am in a place that I never thought I would be, doing something I never thought I would have to do. Doubt. Doubt will put you in a place that you never thought you would be. So we know the end of the story... And we see the beginning of the story, but before we're done tonight, let's take just a couple of minutes and think about the middle. How do you go from threshing wheat in a wine press to having 300 defeat an army that is numerous as locusts with, and camels without number? How do, what happens there? How does all this change? Because whatever changed for Gideon can change for you. Whatever changed for Gideon can change for me. So there's something that you and I need to recognize. How do we get out of the wine press? Well, you have to look at what God does. And this is what we're here tonight to really study and learn. Briefly, let me say this. Look at what God can do. Look at what God does in the life of Gideon. And the Bible tells us in verse 11, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree. Where's Gideon? Gideon is there. And where is God? God comes to Gideon. Gideon is not going the other direction. Gideon, is, it doesn't seem, is going toward God. But notice what God does here. This is very important. God comes to him. God says, I need you to see me. I need you to recognize what I can do for you. And so God comes to him. Verse number 12. The angel of the Lord appeared to him. Came To him. Verse 14. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Now he changes what he says in verse number 15. This is good stuff. In verse number 15. So he said to him, Oh my Lord. See the change? Notice the change. Uh, New King James shows this, the, the change in what he, how he uses and expresses how he, he talks to this angel of the Lord. Oh, my Lord, he recognizes him as deity. How can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Gideon, I'm not sending you by yourself. You're not going to go fight that battle. You're not going to win that by yourself. I am going with you. I have come to you, and I am going to go with you. This is important for us to remember. Gideon is going to trust God after God comes to him. And I'm reminding us again tonight... That the God that came to Gideon is the same God that you and I still serve today. It's a God who wants to be, who is present, who wants to have presence in our lives. I'm not taking this too far. This was a great miracle that performs in chapter seven. And that's not going to happen in our lives today. But don't you dare limit what God can do. God came to Gideon, and then God is going to provide evidence. Gideon is. Uh, it's interesting. I don't know, you know, there's some of those Bible characters and some of those men and women that we read about, and and it just seems like, boy, they were so good, they were so great, they did such great things, and I don't know if I can completely relate to that, but Gideon, Gideon I get, right? Gideon, you and I, we can relate to Gideon, because I probably would be doing some of the same things that he's doing. Threshing wheat in a wine press. I would be hiding. I would be concerned. I might be asking some of the very same questions that he was asking. And then God comes to him, appears to him, and Gideon, you can kind of see, he starts off real small. And you can kind of see him growing gradually. But he needs a lot of help. Right? God is going to be there to help him along. And so Gideon asks questions. God, I need some reassurance. God, I, I need some evidence. How, how do I know that this is you? So in verse 17, Gideon says to, to the angel, I believe the second person of the Godhead, and he says, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that, that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I'll wait until you come back. Don't miss what God does. I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat ...and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour... ...the meat he put in a a basket... ...and he brought the broth in a pot... ...and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree... ...and presented them. And the angel of God said to him... ...take the meat and the unleavened bread... ...and lay them on this rock... ...and pour out the broth... ...and he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff... ...that was in his hand... ...and touched the meat and the unleavened bread... ...and fire rose out of the rock... ...and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread... And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. And Gideon, verse 22, perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Okay, God, how do I know it's you? How do I know that you're really from God? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Gideon's speaking. I'm going to go and prepare an offering. You stay. I'm going to come back. And then you show me that that it's really you. And the angel says, I'll wait. And he does. Now, you keep reading. And you know the rest. You know that that he's going to need reassurance time and again. And you get into this fleece, right, at the end of chapter 6. And he says, God, okay, now, again, if it's really you, will you show me something else? Will you give me another sign? If it's really you, I got this fleece here. I want you to keep it dry and the ground around it wet. God says, okay, I'll do that. And he says, okay, God, please don't be angry with me, but let me me ask you one more. Can you do the opposite? Can you make it wet and the ground all around it dry? And God says, okay, I'll do that too. And what's the point? Do you see the patience of God? Do you see how long-suffering God is? Do you see how you and I... We must at times, you can just picture this angel scratching his head. I mean, you're like, you are you serious? One more thing? That's how you and I would react. Really? One more thing? Isn't one thing enough? I mean, I just put out my staff and fire came out of a rock and consumed everything. Isn't that enough? And Gideon says, no, I need something else. And I need something else. And God says, I'll show you whatever you need. God never asks us to have blind faith. Listen to me. He never requires blind faith. Ever. He always provides the evidence. We live in a world where scientifically people are saying, you believe in God, you must have some kind of blind faith. Nothing could be further from the truth. I don't want blind faith. And God never wanted me to have blind faith. He always says, I will give you the evidence. All the evidence that you need... ...so that you don't have to doubt me. You don't have to question me. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John sums it all up by saying... ...all of these things that I wrote to you... ...concerning the life of Jesus... I have written all of this so that you can see it all and you can believe that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you can have life in His name. And John is saying, What I'm doing is giving you all the evidence so that you can believe in Jesus. I don't want you to blindly follow Christ, I want you to know who He is. That's not blind faith. In Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, Peter is preaching to those people in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And he says, Men and brethren, this Jesus that I'm talking about, he's been attested to you by miracles and signs and wonders which you yourselves know. You've seen the evidence, you know that he's God. All the evidence is pointing to that, to the miracles that he performed. I don't want you to blindly follow Jesus, I want you to know who he is. He's proven himself to you through miracles and what he taught. In Acts chapter 3, verses 18 through 26, Peter, they're preaching, and John, they're saying, Look, they're now speaking to Jews again, and he said, Look at the Old Testament. Look at the prophets. Look at everything that they said. Look at everything that they said concerning the Christ. Concerning the Messiah who was to come. Now, you take all of the prophecies that are made of Jesus and you line Jesus up next to them and you'll find that you don't have to blindly follow Jesus. There's evidence. There's proof that He is the Christ. That He is the one that was promised in the Old Testament. You don't have to blindly follow Jesus. I'm giving you all the evidence that you need. That's exactly what God does with Gideon. I'll give you whatever you need so that you'll believe in me. You'll follow me, and you'll deliver my people. All the evidence is there, brethren and friends, for us to find victory in Jesus, for us to get ourselves out of the wine press. Too often, I might be more like Gideon than I want to be. Too often, I might look at the circumstances of my life and I might want to think of God the way that I think of my circumstances or as my circumstances are. In other words, if things are going pretty good in life, then God must be good. If things are going bad in my life, then it must be God's fault. And God goes from being good to being bad to being good again, to being bad again. Depending on what the circumstances are in my life, that's how I think about God. He's a good God because everything's going good. He's a bad God because I'm hurting right now. Things are not going well for me in my life. And so whatever the circumstances are, alters or changes my thinking of God. I'm afraid that's some of what Gideon is suffering from. If the Lord is with us, then why are the Midianites here? If the Lord is really all-powerful, then what, what, are, what are we doing here? Young people, listen to me. It's a big mistake. It's a big mistake to equate God with your circumstances and say that he's good because things are good or he's bad because he's bad. Now, that's a great temptation. And the devil plays that game and he's really, really good at it and he's done it for a really Long time. But is there a benefit to pain and suffering? Is there a benefit to pain and suffering? Is there a benefit that comes from God's people in Judges chapter 6 being oppressed by the Midianites? Can I ask you again why it is that they're being oppressed by the Midianites? Is it because God did something? No. It's because they left God. It's because they changed the circumstances. God didn't move. God didn't go anywhere. They moved. And now their circumstances are changing. God allows them to suffer. God allows them to feel this pain. But what's the goal? For them to come back to God. Is there a benefit to pain and suffering? You know, sometimes that's what brings people back to God. That can be a benefit, can't it? You know what we often say, people uh, going through uh, recovery of some kind, we, we say, what do they have to hit first? Rock bottom. And then what? Then they'll come back up. And sometimes that's exactly what God will allow. right? He'll let us hit the bottom so that we'll come back up. Can I ask you this question? What if we didn't have any pain and suffering here in this life? What if there was none? What if there was no pain? Oh, wow. You woke up every day, nothing hurt. You woke up every day and you never had to worry about it. You went through life and your bank account always, always was good. You never had to worry about a thing in your life. Can I ask you a question? How much do you long for heaven? I mean, if you never hurt, you never have a worry, you never have anything amiss in your life, you long for heaven the same? I can't wait to go to heaven. I I have to go to heaven. I cannot miss heaven. I must find myself eternally in the presence of God. I make no bones about that. I must go to heaven. I am going to die. I know that I'm going to die. I don't know when. I don't know how. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know I'm going to die. It's appointed for all men to die once. Hebrews 9, verse 27. I I know that I'm going to die. I am not getting out of this life alive. God says, "I, I I want you to come be with me. All of this talk of being out of place, threshing wheat in a wine press, it reminds me of a place. In John chapter 14... This is the place. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again... And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Sometimes in life we have to thresh wheat in a wine press, but that is not the promise eternally. God says, "There's times you you might need to suffer a little bit in this life, and maybe that's because of your own doing." But I'm with you. I'm not going anywhere. And my power will see you through. So that you can get to the place that you all long to be. And that is by me. In my presence forever. Brethren and friends, let's go home to be with Jesus. This earth, so to speak, is is a wine press. Sometimes we have to thresh wheat. This world is not my home. Let's get out and let's go home. Tonight, if you're not a Christian... My friend, I don't know why you're waiting. I don't know what what could be better than tonight for you to choose to become a Christian. It's as if God is, is calling you tonight. He's here. His presence is found right here in the pages of this great word. And he says, this is what you need to do in order to come to me. Jesus says, come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden. and I will give you rest. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Tonight, the invitation of Jesus is extended. Will you come? Do you believe tonight that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Are you willing to make that confession? Are you ready tonight to repent of sin in your life? To be immersed in the waters of baptism, to have your sins washed away? Are you ready tonight to walk in new life? Let's get out of the wine press and let's go home. Tonight as a Christian, you have something amiss in your life and you need to repent of such. You need the prayers of your brethren. Will you please come? Will you please let us help you? Let's go home. Tonight, if you're subject to the Lord's invitation, come while together we stand and while we sing.